discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. For the 175th episode of The Daily Ruckus, I figured I could either just do the same thing I always do, or I could try something different. Yeah, let's do that. I've been meaning to add a new weekly feature to the show for some time now. So welcome to the very first installation of Open Mic Night here on The Daily Ruckus. Here's hoping you like it, and apologies in advance for making you, the listening audience, my guinea pigs in this little podcast experiment. You're listening to Alternate Current Radio. I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Ruckus. Okay, so first things first. Open mic night might be a little bit of a misnomer, and who knows, I might change the name of this little feature that I'm considering adding on a weekly basis to The Daily Ruckus. And I say it's a misnomer because I'm not technically going to be handing the mic over to someone else. However, it's my intention to dedicate one episode of my show every week exclusively to one other person's words. Rather than sourcing news or information from a number of different places, I shall instead, once a week, let a guest voice do the talking through me. I think you'll catch on after we do a couple of these. And for the very first one, since yesterday was Earth Day and today was day two of U.S. President Joe Biden's virtual global climate summit, pushing all that Agenda 2030 noise, I thought my first guest should be, posthumously, sadly, the late best-selling author Michael Crichton. Now, before I hand the microphone over, as it were, to Mr. Crichton, a little introduction. John Michael Crichton was born in Chicago, Illinois, on October 23, 1942, to John Henderson and Zula Miller Crichton. Crichton grew up in Roslyn, New York, and as an adolescent, distinguished himself both inside and outside of the classroom. Crichton was 6 feet 7 inches tall by the time he was 16 years old, and was a valuable member of the Roslyn High School basketball team. Inside the classroom, Crichton's teachers marveled at his intelligence and his remarkable writing talent. At the age of 14, Crichton published his first piece, a travel article, in the New York Times. Crichton's early success at writing led him initially to pursue a writing career, studying in the English department at Harvard University. Upset by a professor's lukewarm reactions to his writing, Crichton soon became disillusioned with the Harvard English department and switched his academic focus. He 
graduated summa cum laude with a bachelor's degree in anthropology in 1964. In 1965, Crichton continued his education at Harvard Medical School, and to help pay his medical school tuition expenses, he started writing novels under various pseudonyms. In 1966, he published his first novel, Odds On, earning him $2,000. Crichton published four more books under a pseudonym in medical school before publishing The Andromeda Strain, his first runaway success under his own name in 1969. The book became a bestseller and was released as a movie by Universal Studios in 1971. After graduating from medical school and following the success of The Andromeda Strain, Crichton abandoned his pursuit of a medical career in favor of writing. After The Andromeda Strain, he continued to publish successful quote-unquote techno-thriller novels. Crichton is credited with inventing the techno-thriller genre, which combines technology, often biotechnology, suspense, and social commentary. In the 1970s and 1980s, Crichton produced a number of acclaimed and best-selling thrillers, including The Great Train Robbery, Eaters of the Dead, The Terminal Man, Congo, and Sphere. In 1990, Crichton published Jurassic Park, which critics lauded as his best novel to date. He followed with a sequel, The Lost World, in 1995. Both novels were turned into blockbuster Hollywood movies, helping cement Crichton's stature as one of the most successful and recognized American writers of his time. In 2004, Crichton again topped several bestseller lists with the publication of his novel State of Fear, a technological thriller dealing with the science and controversy concerning global warming. Crichton's next book in 2006, aptly titled Next, was sadly the last that Crichton would witness hit the bestseller list, at least while he was still alive. On November 4th, 2008, Michael Crichton passed away in Los Angeles after a courageous and private battle against cancer. Since his death, three novels have been published posthumously, and all three were bestsellers. However, let us go back to the 2004 novel, State of Fear. Before publishing State of Fear, Crichton spent three years researching the novel. He poured over numerous texts dealing with the environment, pollution, global warming, and environmental policy. Though Crichton's novel is a work of fiction, it relies heavily on scientific data and research. He employs dozens of footnotes and graphs throughout the novel that go hand-in-hand hand with the fiction. In the novel's preface, he writes that, quote, this is a work of fiction. However, references to real people, institutions, and organizations that are documented in footnotes are accurate. Footnotes are real, end quote. State of Fear couples Crichton's scientific research and data with a fast-paced plot in which a small group of individuals attempt to thwart the actions of an eco-terrorist group. The eco-terrorists are attempting to create a series of apparently natural disasters and fool the public into believing that the events are the result of the adverse effects of global warming. The terrorists plan a series of five disasters, including breaking off a huge chunk of Antarctica, causing a flash flood in Arizona, creating a large hurricane, and finally using explosives to cause a large tsunami. Aside from the entertaining action in State of Fear, Crichton also introduces important social issues, especially relevant to the 21st century, including the influence and role of both corporations and media outlets in scientific research and public opinion. The novel contains an author's message in which Crichton shares his point of view on the various issues addressed in the book. This includes an appendix entitled Why Politicized 
science is dangerous, a short essay in which Crichton suggests fundamental changes in the way that environmental research and environmental policy is undertaken and understood, warning against the dangers of quote-unquote politicized science. And it is that essay, dear listener, that I wish to share with you now. And the text for this can be found on Michael Crichton's official website, michaelcrichton.com. Without any further ado, I present Why Politicized Science is Dangerous, in the words of Michael Crichton. Imagine that there is a new scientific theory that warns of an impending crisis and points to a way out. This theory quickly draws support from leading scientists, politicians, and celebrities around the world. Research is funded by distinguished philanthropies and carried out at prestigious universities. The crisis is reported frequently in the media. The science is taught in college and high school classrooms. I don't mean global warming. I'm talking about another theory, which rose to prominence a century ago. Its supporters included Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Winston Churchill. It was approved by Supreme Court Justices Oliver Wendell Holmes, and Louis Brandis, who ruled in its favor. The famous names who supported it included Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone, activist Margaret Sanger, botanist Luther Burbank, Leland Stanford, founder of Stanford University, the novelist H.G. Wells, the playwright George Bernard Shaw, and hundreds of others. Nobel Prize winners gave support. Research was backed by the Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations. The Cold Springs Harbor Institute was built to carry out the this research, but important work was also done at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, and Johns Hopkins. Legislation to address the crisis was passed in states from New York to California. These efforts had the support of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Medical Association, and the National Research Council. It was said that if Jesus were alive, he would have supported this effort. All in all, the research, legislation, and molding of public opinion surrounding the theory went on for almost half a century. Those who opposed the theory were shouted down and called reactionary, blind to reality, or just plain ignorant. But in hindsight, what is surprising is that so few people objected. Today, we know that this famous theory that gained so much support was actually pseudoscience. The crisis it claimed was non-existent, and the actions taken in the name of the theory were morally and criminally wrong. Ultimately, they led to the deaths of millions of people. The theory was eugenics, and its history is so dreadful, and to those who were caught up in it so embarrassing, that it is now rarely discussed. But it is a story that should be well known to every citizen, so that its horrors are not repeated. The theory of eugenics postulated a crisis of the gene pool, leading to the deterioration of the human race. The best human beings were not breeding as rapidly as the inferior ones. The foreigners, immigrants, Jews, degenerates, the unfit, and the quote-unquote feeble-minded. Francis Galton, a respected British scientist, first speculated about this area, but his ideas were taken far beyond anything he intended. They were adopted by science-minded Americans, as well as those who had no interest in science, but who were worried about the immigration of inferior races early 
early in the 20th century, quote-unquote, dangerous human pests who represented, quote-unquote, the rising tide of imbeciles and who were polluting the best of the human race. The eugenicists and the immigrationists joined forces to put a stop to this. The plan was to identify individuals who were feeble-minded. Jews were agreed to be largely feeble-minded, but so were many foreigners, as well as blacks, and stop them from breeding by isolation in institutions or by sterilization. As Margaret Sanger said, quote, fostering the good for nothing at the expense of the good is an extreme cruelty. There is not greater curse to posterity than that of bequeathing them an increasing population of imbeciles, end quote. She spoke of the burden of caring for, quote, this dead weight of human waste, end quote. Such views were widely shared. H.G. Wells spoke against, quote, ill-trained swarms of inferior citizens, end quote. Theodore Roosevelt said that, quote, society has no business to permit degenerates to reproduce their kind, end quote. Luther Burbank said, quote, stop permitting criminals and weaklings to reproduce, end quote. George Bernard Shaw said that only eugenics could save mankind. There was overt racism in this movement, exemplified by texts such as The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy by American author Lothrop Stoddard. But at the time, racism was considered an unremarkable aspect of the effort to attain a marvelous goal, the improvement of humankind in the future. It was this avant-garde notion that attracted the most liberal and progressive minds of a generation. California was one of 29 American states to pass laws allowing sterilization, but it proved the most forward-looking and enthusiastic. More sterilizations were carried out in California than anywhere else in America. Eugenics research was funded by the Carnegie Foundation and later by the Rockefeller Foundation. The latter was so enthusiastic that even after the center of the eugenics effort moved to Germany and involved the gassing of individuals from mental institutions, the Rockefeller Foundation continued to finance German researchers at a very high level. The foundation was quiet about it, but they were still funding research in 1939, only months before the onset of World War II. Since the 1920s, American eugenicists had been jealous because the Germans had taken leadership of the movement away from them. The Germans were admirably progressive. They set up ordinary-looking houses where quote-unquote mental defectives were brought and interviewed one at a time, before being led into a back room, which was, in fact, a gas chamber. There they were gassed with carbon monoxide and their bodies disposed of in a crematorium located on the property. Eventually, this program was expanded into a vast network of concentration camps located near railroad lines, enabling the efficient transport and killing of 10 million undesirables. After World War II, nobody was a eugenicist, and nobody had ever been a eugenicist. Biographers of the celebrated and the powerful did not dwell on the attractions of this philosophy to their subjects, and sometimes did not mention it at all. Eugenics ceased to be a subject for college classrooms, although some argued that its ideas continue to have currency in disguised form. But in retrospect, three points stand out. First, despite the construction of Cold Springs Harbor Laboratory, despite the efforts of universities and the pleadings of lawyers, there was no scientific basis for eugenics. In fact, nobody at that time knew what a gene really was. The movement was able to proceed because it employed vague terms never rigorously defined. Feeble-mindedness could mean anything from 
poverty to illiteracy to epilepsy. Similarly, there was no clear definition of degenerate or unfit. Second, the eugenics movement was really a social program masquerading as a scientific one. What drove it was concern about immigration and racism and undesirable people moving into one's neighborhood or country. Once again, vague terminology helped conceal what was really going on. Third, and most distressing, the scientific establishment in both the United States and Germany did not mount any sustained protest. Quite the contrary. In Germany, scientists quickly fell into line with the program. Modern German researchers have gone back to review Nazi documents from the 1930s. They expected to find directives telling scientists what research should be done. But none were necessary. In the words of Ute Dijkman, quote, scientists, including those who were not members of the party, helped to get funding for their work through their modified behavior and direct cooperation with the state, end quote. Dijkman speaks of the, quote, active role of scientists themselves in regard to Nazi race policy, where research was aimed at confirming the racial doctrine. No external pressure can be documented, end quote. German scientists adjusted their research interests to the new policies, and those few who did not adjust disappeared. A second example of politicized science is quite different in character, but it exemplifies the hazard of government ideology controlling the work of science and of uncritical media promoting false concepts. Trofim Denisovich Leshenko was a self-promoting peasant who, it was said, quote, solved the problem of fertilizing the fields without fertilizers and minerals, end quote. In 1928, he claimed to have invented a procedure called vernalization, by which seeds were moistened and chilled to enhance the later growth of crops. Leshenko's methods never faced a rigorous test, but his claim that his treated seeds passed on their characteristics to the next generation represents presented a revival of Lamarckian ideas at a time when the rest of the world was embracing Mendelian genetics. Joseph Stalin was drawn to Lamarckian ideas, which implied a future unbounded by hereditary constraints. He also wanted improved agricultural production. Leshenko promised both, and became the darling of a Soviet media that was on the lookout for stories about clever peasants who had developed revolutionary procedures. Leshenko was poor portrayed as a genius, and he milked his celebrity for all it was worth. He was especially skillful at denouncing his opponents. He used questionnaires from farmers to prove that vernalization increased crop yields and thus avoided any direct tests. Carried on a wave of state-sponsored enthusiasm, his rise was rapid. By 1937, he was a member of the Supreme Soviet. By then, Leshenko and his theories dominated Russian biology. The result was famine that killed millions and purges that sent hundreds of dissenting Soviet scientists to the gulags or the firing squads. Leshenko was aggressive in attacking genetics, which was finally banned as quote-unquote bourgeois pseudoscience in 1948. There was never any basis for Leshenko's ideas, yet he controlled Soviet research for 30 years. Leshenkoism ended in the 1960s, but Russian biology still has not entirely recovered from that era. Now we are 
are engaged in a great new theory that once again has drawn the support of politicians, scientists, and celebrities around the world. Once again, the theory is promoted by major foundations. Once again, the research is carried out at prestigious universities. Once again, legislation is passed and social programs are urged in its name. Once again, critics are few and harshly dealt with. Once again, the measures being urged have little basis in fact or science. Once again, groups with other agendas are hiding behind a movement that appears high-minded. Once again, claims of moral superiority are used to justify extreme actions. Once again, the fact that some people are hurt is shrugged off because an abstract cause is said to be greater than any human consequences. Once again, vague terms like sustainability and generational justice, terms that have no agreed definition, are employed in the service of a new crisis. I am not arguing that global warming is the same as eugenics, but the similarities are not superficial. And I do claim that open and frank discussion of the data and of the issues is being suppressed. Leading scientific journals have taken strong editorial positions of the side of global warming, which I argue they have no business doing. Under the circumstances, any scientist who has doubts understands clearly that they will be wise to mute their expression. One proof of this suppression is the fact that so many of the outspoken critics of global warming are retired professors. These individuals are no longer seeking grants and no longer have to face colleagues whose grant applications and career advancement may be jeopardized by their criticisms. In science, the old men are usually wrong, but in politics, the old men are wise, counsel caution, and in the end, are often right. The past history of human belief is a cautionary tale. We have killed thousands of our fellow human beings because we believed they had signed a contract with the devil and had become witches. We still kill more than a thousand people each year for witchcraft. In my view, there is only one hope for humankind to emerge from what Carl Sagan called the quote-unquote demon-haunted world of our past. That hope is science. But as Alston Chase puts it, quote, when the search for truth is confused with political advocacy, the pursuit of knowledge is reduced to the quest for power, end quote. That is the danger we now face. And this is why the intermixing of science and politics is a bad combination with a bad history. We must remember the history and be certain that what we present to the world as knowledge is disinterested and honest. For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been The Daily Ruckus for Friday, April 23rd, 2021. For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.